Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Greetings from the World Government Summit in Dubai. This is one of those big international conferences. Think World Economic Forum in Davos. It's hosted by the government of the United Arab Emirates, and it focuses on almost futuristic ways that governments can better serve their people and operate in the service of sustainable development. There's heavy UN participation here. The Secretary General is giving an address. The heads of World Bank and IMF are presenting, and it seems to be getting bigger each year. The first day of the summit focused on the question of happiness. That is, how can governments measure happiness and design policies that promote it? The underlying premise here is that happiness is more than a personal pursuit, but is actually a public good. This is obviously on the fringes of public policy discourse in the United States and many other countries. But as one panelist, who is the Ecuadorian minister for Buen Vivar, pointed out, the, quote, pursuit of happiness was literally written into the founding documents of the United States. These days, many other countries are kind of taking up the mantle of making happiness a serious public policy endeavor. These include Ecuador, and here in the United Arab Emirates, there is even a minister for happiness. Slovenia has a similar position as well. And the government of Bhutan created an indicator it calls gross national happiness that it says guides public policy decisions there. With me to discuss the intersection of happiness and public policy is economist Andrew Oswald, who pioneered this line of study. We discuss how one actually measures and quantifies happiness in a way that's relevant to public policy and also the political implications of a happy versus a discontent population. This is really cutting edge stuff and I think intellectually very interesting. And Andrew brings a critical and quantitative eye to this question. It's a absolutely fascinating conversation. And here is Professor Andrew Oswald and I from the World Government Summit in Dubai talking happiness and public policy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, We ask people in all sorts of ways, very simple questions like, on a 10-point scale, how happy do you feel with your life? Or how satisfied? In my country, the United Kingdom now, as part of official government statistics, the government is collecting data not just on happiness and life satisfaction, but also on how anxious did you feel yesterday, and on how worthwhile, on a scale from 0 to 10, do you feel your life is, worthwhileness. There are also lots of mental health measures, psychiatric scores, you might say, that my research team work with. And you tend to get the same patterns if you look at large samples of people, no matter how you ask them about how they feel about their lives. And and I think the reason it doesn't matter is 
if I ask you, you look inside yourself and there's, a, there's really only one way that you're feeling and you kind of give an answer. Mm-hmm. So, although when you first come to this research field, you think it must be a problem to measure human happiness. Because it's all subjective, right? I don't, I don't think it's a problem. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's subjective, but I am the judge of my own happiness. So what else am I going to do? Well, so for example, the, the Prime Minister of Bhutan said some of the indicators that, that they use in, in their gross national happiness index are not subjective, like the amount of sleep you get could be one one indicator yeah if you want to measure sleep it's an excellent idea to do that if you want to measure happiness then you might want to measure happiness mm-hmm. yes lots of things influence happiness and are correlated with happiness and sleep is correlated but it's really telling you how much time I spend in bed and how much I'm not awake and that's not the same as my okay, happiness. Okay. Fair, fair enough. So, so how do you use the data you collect on uh, the, 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 the happiness indicators to inform public policy? Yes. Um, well, well, partly I'm driven by, and for 25 years have been, by scientific curiosity about the patterns. What are the characteristics of happy people? But if you want to know about happy nations and the external influences, you might say, on my happiness and on your happiness... Um, how clean the air is, there's a lot of research now showing that shows up strongly in mental well-being scores. Pollution? And, and, uh, yes, and air pollution particulates in, in the air. Okay. We have studies where the air particulates vary day by day, and that affects how people answer on happiness survey forms, even though they're not aware that they're responding to these tiny particles hmm. in the air. How green the environment is, that influences people's happiness. All kinds of background fear factors whether you have a national health service, like in my country, whether you, whether you have to wake up in the middle of the night worrying about your job or your health or something else, these background factors can be influenced by governments. And an absolutely key thing for public policy is it's very hard to make a rich country happier by making it richer. Mm-hmm. I'll become happier if I get richer and everyone else stays the same, but it doesn't work for a whole country. So, so okay, so this... this you're, I think, confirming a theory I have about this, which is, in essence, a pro-happiness public policy agenda is really like a redistributive scheme. It's just a way of, of promoting more redistribution of, and more equality, uh, more equity um, among, among wealth. I certainly, I personally wouldn't say that. Um, okay. I've looked at links between average happiness and inequality, and they're very weak. So like so, the Scandinavian so I, countries that are the, le- the most equal are not necessarily the happiness, happiest? Uh, the Scandinavian countries do very well, okay. yes. And there are all sorts of reasons for that, including we've found um, some genetic uh, explanations ah. very probably. We, um, okay. we have a paper coming out showing that the Danes, Denmark, may have a, a genetic advantage. But in that uh, country, they're, they're doing many things right. And um, in a low inequality may be part of it, mm-hmm. but in my own research, I have not found strong statistical links between inequality and lower happiness. Mm-hmm. Certainly, individuals want to be high up a, an income ranking, but that's not the same thing as inequality. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, uh, another theory you've just confirmed is that Danes are genetically superior to the rest of us. <laughs> um, I wouldn't put it in quite those terms, but there is some I have, evidence. I have many Danish friends. Um, there is some evidence yeah. that some countries have a genetic advantage. I wouldn't stress that overly because okay. it's not that big an effect. Mainly, I think what the Scandinavian countries have done is to reduce background fear in people's lives by having strong, what you might call, social safety nets. Mm-hmm. 
I just came back from a sabbatical at Yale University, New Haven, and it's very clear so many uh, people around the New Haven area fall through social safety nets and are virtually in dire poverty. Yes. And I'm sure they're extremely unhappy, though I didn't take their happiness readings. And the Scandinavian countries have largely managed to get rid of that group of individuals, and of course that helps the average happiness. Mm-hmm. So, you know, following the, the U.S. election, there's been a lot of kind of soul searching in, in the United States about you know what is a cause of, of this kind of populist movement in the United States that also uh, affects European countries as well, and and it seems that discontentment is is uh, a unifying factor um, uh, among, you know, the people who voted for Trump weren't necessarily poorer or more or wealthier than your average Republican voter. There was just a, seems to be a level of discontent that they were expressing with their vote. And I'm wondering if, you know, if, if focusing on happiness in a way is an antidote to the kind of populism we're seeing in the United States uh, and also in, in Europe. And, and Denmark is not like immune to this to this populist sentiment either. Well, I think you've, you've caught a very important theme there. I wouldn't use the word antidote, but mm-hmm. we do. And my research group has shown that unhappy people, perhaps this is quite intuitive, are more likely to vote out the current government. Mm-hmm. And it's not because it's necessarily a rational thing to do. Uh, we have studied what happens when people have uh, a partner die. Their husband or wife die in middle age. And we've used that, as it were, as a rather unhappy experimental group. We study what happens, and they tend to vote against the incumbent government hmm. because they're unhappy. Of course, the incumbent government didn't produce this sad state of affairs where their partner has just died in midlife, a very rare thing to happen. But when people are unhappy, they just vote against everything. Mm-hmm. And I think, in part, that's what's happened in the United States and some other countries. As you say, discontent makes people vote in a particular way. It's not necessarily they're voting for something, but they're voting for change because they don't feel good. So, I mean, is is the implication of that, that you know, pursuing a pro-happiness agenda is a way for incumbent political forces to just kind of stay in power? Definitely. But I doubt if many politicians in the world need to know my equations. <laughs> They probably know that the secret to being re-elected is to make your citizens happy. It's not so easy to make your citizens happy, but I think politicians have an excellent intuitive understanding of that. Um, are there governments around the world that do this well, that, that kind of pursue a happiness agenda um, you know, for its own sake or, or you know, pursue a happiness agenda sort of specifically? I mean, so for example, you know, we're here in the UAE, there is a minister of, of happiness. Yes. Uh, that seems to you know try to like mainstream this idea across government agencies. Uh, what what can you say about the UAE experience or and also you know Bhutan, which which seems to be kind of exporting this idea of gross national happiness as part of like its foreign policy agenda. I, I admire what the UAE is uh, doing what, and what it's trying to do. I I argued 25 years ago that countries should collect happiness data on their citizens and think about how that might help inform social policy and economic policy. It's because human happiness is ultimately what societies presumably care about. Uh, Broadly, it's terribly early on. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is like GDP was, gross domestic product was around 1940, say. We don't know where it's going to go, uh, but the principle is sensible 
and um, as long as we bear in mind that people need to make their own life choices and we're just trying as a government and society to help set the background where people can make better choices for their own happiness I'm, I'm keen on that and I think it's just common sense in a way mm -hmm. uh, on uh, Bhutan you know around the UN you know UN circles are kind of famous for this idea of, of gross national happiness like how methodologically sound in your opinion is that indicator that they're using and I guess how do you sort of interpret what they're doing I think it's reasonably sound uh, because it's so early on mm -hmm. in government attempts around the world to measure mental well-being in a reliable persuasive uh, regular way we, we we're just feeling our way in the half dark here mm -hmm. Um, my country, for example, is now collecting systematic data on people's feelings as part of national statistics, something I would never have predicted when 25 years ago I began working on the statistics of mental well-being. So it's come uh, remarkably fast by some standards, and uh, in a broad sense I'm encouraged. We have to learn a lot more, though, about how to do this, and ultimately we want really objective measures of human happiness if we can find them physiologically, we're working on blood pressure, we're working on cortisol, um, lots of sciences are coming together. Bhutan, how do you interpret it, that experience? Bhutan is, is doing its own thing, um, despite the publicity around Bhutan, it rarely shows up in our systematic happiness surveys, mm -hmm. so I'd like to see some proper statistics on Bhutan and do mm -hmm. a proper controlled experiment mm -hmm. um, up against other countries, but I definitely wish them luck and it's ambitious uh, on, on the UK experience which, you know you say you're, you're most familiar with how do you expect the government to interpret and use those findings to inform public policy you ask an excellent question and broadly um, we're not sure yet okay. but in lots of choices that we make in a society government choices company and private choices ultimately we're weighing up uh, different ways to make people happier and it's costly to do that so we have to transfer resources it's long been known that we want to do it in a sensible way but my generation of economists has been obsessed about thinking what's the positive in terms of dollars or pounds what's the negative in terms of dollars or pounds and we need to switch to happiness units you might say because it, it's not money per se that people care about. It's uh, feelings. Mm -hmm. Happiness units. Happy, there you go. Happiness so. units. So we need to work out the a cost-benefit yeah. analysis of H. Yeah, the mm -hmm. H benefit cost analysis, not dollars or pounds cost-benefit. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I guess that, that's the title of your talk, is, is, is Gross National Happiness the New GDP, or Happiness the New GDP. Yes, that, that's right. And happiness is the new GDP. We will eventually work out better ways to measure it, but the, the idea is just common sense. Well, thank you so much. This was interesting. Fascinating. I, I love kind of the, the new frontier and, and what this implies for public policy, international affairs, and global development. This it's a great. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is great. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Okay. Good luck with your work. Thank you. Yeah, good luck. All right. Thank you all for listening. Do uh, read UN Dispatch if you want to keep up with the happenings here at the World Government Summit or follow me on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. I'll be here for the duration 